Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. Gateway Rescue Mission, meeting the physical and spiritual needs of the homeless right here in Jackson, Mississippi. Check us out at www.gatewaymission.org. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday Eve. Yes, indeed it is. Uh, The weather is rather delightful today, but we got some storms moving in tomorrow, correct? Yeah, we got shorts weather before it gets soggy. (laughs) That's crazy. And then it's going to get cold next week, right? Oh, yeah. The temperature is going to start dropping on Monday and keep dropping all throughout the day. And then on Tuesday morning, you'll wake up with the coldest day of the year. Yeah. Bizarre. Yeah. And uh, for the rest of the week, next week, looks fairly chilly. Yeah, not quite as cold as on uh, Tuesday, Monday night, Tuesday morning, at least so far on the forecast. But uh, yeah, you will dip below freezing for at least a couple days early in the morning. Yeah, but you know, the forecast earlier in the week were for it to be even more frigid than it than the most recent forecast, I would oh, say. Oh, yeah. It's right? it's moderated a bit, but that's only a bit because it went from, like in central Mississippi, it went from a forecast low of 9 degrees to a forecast low of 12 degrees. Yeah. Well, do you remember the sportscaster Keith Jackson used oh, to yeah. do the, when you had one college game, the game of the week, I think they called it, something like that? He was fantastic. And he always used to talk about games over there at Legion Field in Birmingham when they used to play a lot of uh, SEC games over there, Alabama, Auburn as well. And he'd say, the blood is boiling in Birmingham. (laughs) He he was the king of alliteration. Well, I think the blood might be boiling in Tuscaloosa right now with their iconic and quite successful the dean of college football, arguably, Nick Saban. He's out. Hanging it up. Got that announcement after seven titles, most of any coach in the history of college football. And six with Bama. Exactly. Uh, And, you know, if you've ever been to a game over there in Tuscaloosa, they pretty much let you know they've won six national championships under Saban, and I don't know how many, what, like 12 well, in their history the, the or something. the ones under Saban don't really have much contention, but they do have some that they claim in their storied history, which I never understood. It's like you have so many national championships legitimately yeah. that no one questions. 
Why do you embarrass yourselves and claim other national championships where there are obviously better teams from that season? Yep. I agree. Uh, the the coach, honestly, just my opinion, he's 72, by the, co- uh, by the way. He's been there since 07. I think he's just not crazy about this this new NIL collective no. portal, all that sort of stuff. It does to some degree, I would it's say. the reason he left the NFL. I think that's right. He, he couldn't deal with coaching people to get paid, essentially, where you he felt like I just sort of have limited, limited control, limited management. They're making more than me, you know, kind of deal. And, hey, you don't like it, coach, I'm out of here sort of thing. And that's kind of the way college football has evolved, except I believe it, as a free agent in the NFL, you got to stay three years. Well, heck, in the college, you're gone on at the drop of a hat in a year. So there's no long-term commitment. Of course, it's not about four years of eligibility total, currently at least. Wow. Seems so, like the minimum nowadays is five. There's a bunch of exceptions, no waivers and so because forth. Because with being the granted. extra COVID year, yeah. you had six-year players, and with injuries, you had seven-year. Now I don't think there's an eighth-year player. I think that's right. I saw that the other day. Um, but nonetheless, I think Coach Saban says, "Okay, I'm done. This is not what I signed up for." And um, he hasn't said that, though. He has made it clear he's not a big fan of the entire NIL. Uh, situation. I think he's made that fairly clear. So we'll see. Um, you know, there are rumors swirling about, as you know, as to who might be his successor. It might be safe to say they got some big old shoes to fill, <laughs> at a minimum. Yeah, I mean, the the adage is you never want to be the man that follows the man. Yeah, I think that's right. And but there are a lot of people coaching in at all levels of football that have a big enough ego to think, well, that doesn't apply to me. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, And to some extent, it does diminish their advantage. I mean, the advantage of recruiting kids to Alabama is you got a high probability of winning a national championship. We play in front front of 107,000. We've got top-notch facilities and a coach who's won seven national championships. And the other big thing, you know this, Rhino, that these kids look at, especially the, well, really at all levels, whether they're transferring or coming from junior college or they're coming out of high school, is what gives me the best chance to get to, as they describe it, the league? What gets me to the league? Because every single one of them, of course, have the vision. They envision themselves playing in the National Football League, getting paid handsomely to play the sport they love. But That's the que- fine. The question is, kind of like with, well, the recent departure of Belichick and the Patriots, the question yeah. after Tom Brady left was, is it Bill or is it Tom? Yeah. Was it Belichick that made the dynasty or was it Tom Brady? When Tom left, Belichick struggled, so it seems like the answer to that one was it was Tom. With this one, is it Bama, the Crimson Tide, that's gotten all these players to the pros, or was it Saban? Good point. Because and he's got more first-round draft picks than he has losses and that's in the Tuscaloosa. Point. And that's the point, is that the kids know that, and they sell that, and they should, very effectively. Hey, look, you want to get to the league, look at our experience, our, our resume in that department versus others. We send more than anybody else, and especially if they're first-round draft picks getting the big money. So 
Yeah, that is a valuable asset, a valuable tool, but that's been diminished somewhat, I would say, with the ability to move around and the money being thrown out there. Uh, It's like, well, I might not make it to the league, but I could sock away a couple of mil here and then not make it, right, while I'm playing college football. So it's, I I don't think the big-time programs like in Alabama quite have the advantage that they once did. I really, I really do see that. Well, no, because they had their own version of NIL before NIL was legal. In a big way. In a bigger way than most. <laughs> so, uh, all, you're right, all out in the open. Which is why it, it, it boggles the mind, and it's really only because Saban disliked it so much that they didn't have something ready to go day one. All right, collectives. Like, how did they not, how are they not the one that came up with collectives? Yeah. Uh, they ran a collective for decades without even NIL being a thing. It it just wasn't sanctioned. It wasn't legal. It wasn't publicized. It wasn't out in the open. Yeah. Um, in, in any program that says, oh, we didn't have that going on, well, first, you don't know what goes on. You know, it's it. it there's a there's a Anybody firewall. Anybody says it wasn't going on is a little naive or yeah, just dumb. No, no question. And you know, the NCAA gets thousands of reports, as you know. And any time a, a school loses a recruit to a rival school, oh, they're cheating. Okay, go ahead and report that, and then you know you go through the process of trying to figure all that out. But nonetheless, that's what we're dealing with. Uh, rumors are that um, the coach at Oregon, his name escapes me, it tops, Dan Lanning. That's it. Tops the list of prospects to replace Coach Saban there in Tuscaloosa. Only a $20 million buyout in his contract. Uh, right. But I don't think that'd be a hurdle for supporters of the Crimson Tide if they want, if that's their man and they want it. And then, but of if course. If that gets paid, do you want to see something inflate faster than coaching salaries? buyout amounts. Well, Jimbo Fisher, right? Insane what just happened a few months ago. And then uh, Lane Kiffin, of course, at Ole Miss. He's among the prospects. Kirby Smart. I don't see that one. I don't either. I tell you what. I don't see Dabo either. I don't either. Because of his disdain for NIL. But a couple years ago, you would have said he's the heir apparent, Dabo. I would have thought. uh, To to save it. And many people thought that. Um, Now, then there's the, okay, who His exactly... His diamond in the rough turned out to be a cubic zirconia. I think so. It's been tarnished somewhat uh, in the in the last couple of years, for sure. So, I don't know. But the topsy-turvy world of college football, I don't know that I have encountered anyone, just just anecdotally, you know, uh, friends, associates, and so forth, who, who are fans of schools, especially those here in the state of Mississippi, that said, man, I love this NIL and collective <laughs> I haven't seen anybody. I mean, not not that they are not happy with the operation of like the collectives. They're not happy about the portal, the opt-outs, just the flexibility, the the lucidity, shall we say, and just the fact that these players are, you know, cutting deals for big-time money, and that is sort of driving everything in college sports. A lot of folks are not happy. But you better learn to play in it or you're not going to succeed. Coming right back, we got Manley Barton at 11.05, Senator Jeremy England at 12. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
I love that rhino. That is deep purple. And I want you guys to hear that for a second. You think that's some good music to listen to when you're trucking down the road? You look down at the speedometer and you're a hundred. <laughs> Name of the song is Burn, if you can't tell. By the way, I, when I was an aspiring young, very much amateur drummer, <laughs> Ian Pace, the drummer. I believe they had two musicians in the band Deep Purple with the first name of Ian, which is kind of a common name, right, in the UK. Ian Pace, and here's the deal, he's left-handed. And when you try to emulate that when you're right-handed, it's really, really hard. Everything's like one one lick off, you know what I mean? So, uh, And you can just tell he's flying right there. But appreciate that digressing a little bit. We were just talking about Nick Saban, Bill Belichick, Pete Carroll, too. Although he's sticking around as an advisory That's role. what they say, yeah. Um, but little upheaval in the world of football, no doubt about it. And the Pac-12's demise. Yeah, that's it for those guys. And Oregon, or not Oregon, Oklahoma and Texas joining the SEC. I'm hearing that uh, North Carolina, is it North Carolina and Clemson that want to join the SEC and say, where are we going with this? Are we going to have like three conferences? I mean, that's been suggested for a long time. Yeah, the mega conferences. Yeah. I don't know. It's crazy. Uh, once again, at 11.05, Speaker Pro Tem Manley Barton will join middays. And then at 12.05, is Senator Jeremy England. He, of course, in, fo- in fact, uh, both of these gentlemen for the from the Mississippi Gulf Coast. So... When it comes to mega conferences, I think there's a limiting factor on it, and it's geography. Yep. And even in pro leagues, you tend to have four different divisions. Yeah. At like that's the just the bare minimum. Like sometimes you have some leagues that'll get away with three divisions, and some of the minor leagues will have several divisions, but. Ultimately, in big-time leagues, you got four divisions. Now, how you divide that up, that's that's up for debate. But I don't see them. I don't see the conferences growing too much bigger without major changes happening at the NCAA. Yeah, either just a dissolution of it, and they just all agree to have their own league, and it's like a feeder to the NFL, or the NCAA grows a spine and starts telling conferences, hey, you signed up to be amateurs. What are you doing? Yeah. You know, again, I I think I've shared this on the program before. I've thought for some time that we're headed for privatization of college athletics, uh, at a minimum college football, which is the big money sport, more than the others. Oh, yeah. And, you know, my, my thoughts about that are that, the football programs would be private. They would be private organizations, franchised, if you will, 
by the universities. The experience would be the same. Uh, let's say the private organizations would, would rent the facilities. I mean, you could come up with a number of different arrangements, but in general, I, I think we're headed to a point where the players, for example, won't have to be enrolled in school, won't have to be students. They'll just be hired gun, paid athletes. And it may be structured like kind of a very highly compensated minor league system. If you think about the minor leagues in um, Major League Baseball. Now, those folks don't make nearly the money that the big leagues guys do. But we're talking they don't produce the income, the revenue. Minor League Baseball does. And we were talking yesterday quite a bit about the Embraves leaving Pearl, Mississippi here. And now there's concerns about what the Shuckers will do down on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And I mean, to, in some situations, minor league operators do view them as a business, the, those programs, those teams, and they try to produce a profit. In other situations, it just depends on the philosophy of the major league team. No, we understand we're going to lose money. We're just trying to develop players, thinking we get better players, we develop them, we send them to the big leagues, and because of their talents, they draw more money at the big league level, where we make all our money. And when it comes to development with football at least from my understanding, the NFL has appreciated historically their hands-off approach to college football. It's like, thanks for the development. We'll take it from here. We don't want to deal with them at that age or with that kind of stuff. And another feather in that cap is with how much money has been pumped into NIL, if the NFL really wanted college football to be a feeder system for them instead of just coming along once a year and scraping the top off, wouldn't you have had the big money of the NFL kind of filtering its way into NIL? Yeah, I think you would have, and I think you're right. They don't want anything to do with it, man. I mean, it's minor league baseball, you know, it's just with my son playing at a high level and him having lots of teammates that went on to play. I don't think I ever met one that said, I really like playing this minor league baseball. I mean, they can't stand it, honestly. And it's it's a situation where... You don't really play as a team. It's a little bit dog-eat-dog because you're trying to get to the next level. So it's it's unlike, and, and many of them will share with me, it's not like the college experience where we're really all trying to win for our team, for our program, for our school, for our fans, etc. But when you get to the minor leagues, no, you're trying to show that you're better than the guy sitting next to you so they'll take you. I mean, it literally does come down to that. That's why even though I watch professional soccer, like I watch the Premier League, I watch MLS, I watch pros playing soccer, a lot of the times I'm watching to keep up with players from the national team because it's very much that difference. When you're playing for the national team, you're not doing it for the money. You're doing it for the pride of playing for your country. That's right. But when you're playing in the Premier League or when you're playing in MLS or you're playing in La Liga, it's a job, and it's dog-eat-dog. Dog. Yeah, uh, precisely right. And, so and it's that's just two different mentalities, and you can see it on the field. I think for that reason, uh, what you're talking about there, the NFL just stays its distance on this and hasn't really entered it. But they're, look what they're getting. I mean, the product's being developed um, at, you know, by the colleges. So it's it's a little different than and trying to get... And now the onus for 
financial education is falling on the colleges more so than it was the NFL. Because the NFL, you had entire teams devoted to teaching rookies, hey, you've got a $15 million contract. That doesn't mean you can afford a $15 million house. That's right. And by the way, we have a question on the ceasefire tax line. That's 601-879-4395. Jim in the Delta, is NIL money treated as taxable income to the players? It absolutely is. It's taxable income. Uh, let's see. Also, Jerry and Pontotoc says, I can categorically state I have not been in contact with anyone concerning the Alabama coaching job. <laughs> me either there, Jerry. <laughs> One of the titles... I'm not saying no. If they want to give me a call and pay me that much money, I, I would definitely consider it. Let's see. One of the titles they claim could have gone to Mississippi State during World War II. State was the only team to beat Alabama but was unable to travel to a bowl game because of the war. I didn't know that. That's interesting fodder there. But Bama claims that national title. Okay. Even though they were beat on the field by a team that doesn't claim the national title. Okay. Well, there you go. Elizabeth from Gauthier says there's no loyalty anymore. And, And it certainly does on the surface look like that. When you go play for a year and then boom, well, I think I'm going to take my chances in the portal or look for a better deal. It yeah. feels like that's a side effect of the boom-bust cycle when it comes to sports. I mean, look at how baseball in the major leagues has changed, where at one point in time, you 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 weren't paying players as much, yeah. and you also had players that stayed at a team for their entire career. Yeah. When the money goes up, the players want a bigger piece of it. And sure. That, Often involves moving around, so now you have you have a completely different team every year, it seems like, for some teams. Tim and McGee, I promise you at Bama it was Saban. He should have gotten Coach of the Year because of what he did this year. Alabama's legacy, let's see, no, I'm, let me back up. This is on the ceasefire text line. Saban's recruiting, coaching, greatly attributed to Les Miles winning another LSU championships when he was, that's right, at LSU. So Saban definitely was a driving force, but you could say Alabama's legacy continues to their ability to get the best coaches as well as players. And I think a lot of that is a function of, again, what they have to sell. Look at all these national championships we've won. Look at all these kids we've gotten to the league, first-round draft picks, etc. And there are a lot of folks that say that that is the most accurate measurement of the quality of a program is how they fare when the kids graduate out of their system and get drafted into the NFL. But on the flip side of that, there have been reports from several NFL-level Alabama, former Alabama players that didn't last very long in the league because they felt burnt out by the time they graduated college. They, yeah. They'd put everything they had into it. Yep. Uh, Gerard, they did have hired players in the 1920s. Most were World War One vets. That from Moe's. Interesting. Didn't know that. Well, also we had uh, Donald Trump. Uh, conducting a town hall on Fox last night, and then over on CNN it was uh, Nikki Haley, Governor Nikki Haley and Governor Ron DeSantis. They traded barbs for two hours. I endured all two hours. It was killing me. We're going to talk about that when we come back. Stay with us. Bring it on! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on! On Super Talk Mississippi. Shoes. Underneath I'm just a cotton picker 
Ricky Skaggs bumping us into this segment here on Midday. There you go. We are in the Element Well studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. And once again today, we shall be giving out some tickets to the ZZ Top concert. That is coming up on March the 20th at the Brandon Amphitheater. So, uh, last night, you had uh, a sort of competing broadcast, if you will. You had Donald Trump conducting a town hall over there on Fox News, and then you had Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, governors uh, both, and also, of course, Miss Haley, former ambassador, of course, Mr. Trump, former president, over there on Fox. But the debate on CNN, yes, I did endure it. And I'll start with this. Uh, Jake Tapper and it's Dana, what's her name? Dana Dash, Bash, I think is the name. Uh, the moderators there over at uh, CNN. I don't watch it a lot. Yeah, Bash. Bash, yeah, okay. I, I'll give them some credit and, and honestly some kudos. I watched all two hours. Two hours is a long time with two candidates. You know what I mean? Um, one, you get a lot, but two hours. Here's what I'll give them credit for. Their questions were excellent. They were issues-based. They were substantive. There's no doubt. And they, and they at least prompted the candidates to, to uh, expose and espouse their positions on the various issues, and the issues are those that Americans are thinking about. I mean, from domestic to foreign and everything in between. I thought it was excellent in that respect. Uh, they did try to bait both of them to elicit responses that I think where they were looking for them to be critical and condemn former President Trump. Which, the problem is he wasn't on the stage. And what both of them would say, they, they sort of distance themselves and avoid uh, answering those questions directly. So it would be a question about, like, abortion. Well, what do you think about Trump's stance on abortion instead of yours? And rather than going after him, both of them, I think, did a fairly good job of saying he really ought to be here to express his views on these matters. You know, I and they would a little bit get into it, but stop way short of just all-out assailing of the former president. The only thing that I caught that I guess you could describe as somewhat, uh, somewhat as condemnation of the former president is when Ron DeSantis just pointed out that some of the promises the former president made during his campaign uh, for the presidency in, uh, in 2016 were not fulfilled. He pointed to the wall. He pointed to balancing the budget. He, he suggested both of those, for example, as failures to 
make good on your promises. Accurate. But they stopped short of just really coming out and trashing the former president. Not Certainly not in the style that we've seen out of Governor Chris Christie, who, by the way, bowed out yesterday. If you hadn't seen that, folks, he's, he is no longer a candidate for president. So I guess we could say that um, it's down to Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, and, of course, Donald Trump. I don't know. Is Asa Hutchinson, is he formally announced that he's out? Because he got no traction, honestly, and raised no money. But here's the other thing I took away from it, just in general, without really digging into the details of their responses to the various issues put before them, was they really weren't that far off on what they believed in their vision overall, rather than focusing on, here's how I'm different, they focused on, yeah, they believe that, or they're telling you they believe that, but they failed. School choice was one. You know, and Governor Nikki Haley indicated that she, in general, supported it, but then Ron DeSantis points out, But you caved to the teachers' unions in South Carolina, and you didn't get it done. And in Florida, we got universal school choice. That's an example. And then they got into the debate about about, uh, oil and gas, drilling, fracking, exploration, production. And she called him out on, well, you banned some of these practices uh, in the waters around Florida. And he, of course, really didn't address that to a great extent. He's got, you may have heard, Rhino, he's got this new zinger. It's, uh, what does he say? It's Midland rather than Moscow. He's got, I don't know, there's three things he's talking about. He's talking about essentially leveraging the, the fossil fuels assets under the ground in this country, getting those out of the ground to, once again, achieve energy independence and just boost the supply of oil and bring the cost down. I'm all relative. Uh, irrelevant, I should say, but, uh, you know, and then he, he blasted her for her getting cozy to China. You sort of open your door to China, yet you're telling us that they're a, an adversary that we have to tread lightly around with policy and so forth. She says, you know, she's more, this is where they did differ, she's more about financial assistance to Ukraine. She sees value in that, and she thinks that's a small amount of money for the return we get, something to that effect. And he basically opposes that. Here's something else that came up that's relevant to Mississippi, Rhino. The question came up about Medicaid expansion. Neither of those states, they're among the ten, Florida and South Carolina, which have not expanded. And the question asked by Tapper, CNN's Tapper, was... Will you repeal Medicaid expansion as as part of any efforts to reform health care for the 40 states which have expanded? That was the question. Neither one of them would directly answer that question. Rather, they immediately launched in to this scripted communications about health care. Not about Medicaid expansion specifically. The only thing that got a little specific to Medicaid, something I have, by the way, supported for a long time, 
is that Governor Nikki Haley said, I'm for block grants to the state to operate their Medicaid programs. I totally support that as well, which essentially would just be a big chunk of money that would essentially equal to what the government, the federal government, would pay in their match to the Medicaid program on both the fee-for-service model and the managed care organization model. These, those are the payment systems we use here in Mississippi that Governor Reeves, of course, uh, proposed reforms to, which were recently approved by CMS. And what she said was, no, and I agree with this concept. Let's just send a chunk of money and give the states more latitude in operating their Medicaid programs or using those dollars for health care in general. That, that makes total sense to me. But Governor DeSantis really never would answer the question. He, but he did point something out. By the way, folks, my, my article on health care, should tell you, is scheduled to be published uh, today. It may happen while we're on the air. I just, just talked to our news department about that and got the final sign-off on that. But, but there's something that just happened in Florida. Rhino, I'm not sure if you've seen this. They got approval from CNS. CMS did Florida to purchase drugs from Canada. Okay, so... You know, lots of the same prescription drugs are available from suppliers in Canada at a much lower cost than they are, sometimes 25%, than they are uh, domestically. He got approval to do that. Now, it may get some, um, some challenges. Don't know. But, he, but so rather than answering the Medicaid question, he pointed that out. And I agree with him. That, I think it's a great thing. I think the state of Mississippi ought to... Uh, really look at this, uh, th- that as something to help the situation here in the state of Mississippi as well. Um, but, so they got into that. You know, with respect to spending, uh, Nikki Haley said, I will not approve any budget where the spending is greater than pre-COVID levels. Okay, well, it's something we need to point out there. We're only talking about the discretionary point of spend, part of spending. Not the mandatory. That's what's driving the craziness with respect to uh, our budgetary shortfalls and our deficits. Well, okay, so based on what we discussed yesterday, it looks like that there's a bipartisan deal to pass $1.6 trillion of discretionary spending. We would return uh, to about $1.3 trillion. So, okay, $300 billion of savings. That's great, except... Miss Haley, the deficit is two trillion. Why won't people realize that math? I'm all for saving three hundred billion. That's a lot of money. But you need another one point seven trillion to balance the budget. How are you gonna do that? Coming right back in the Element Well studio. Are we gonna do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk, Mississippi. Thank you. 
We are back in the Element Well studio. We appreciate you joining us. Speaker Pro Tem Manley Barton will join uh, middays at 11.05. So uh, the subject of immigration, of course, came up. Like I said, I, I thought the CNN moderators did an excellent job of, of really covering the spectrum of issues, both domestic and foreign. And, and of course, immigration would be among those. Huge issue. And they, they focused more on how to deal with the question specifically asked by Jake Tapper, uh, had to deal with uh, how to handle the 10 million undocumented immigrants. Well, you know, I, I guess that I would say that I'm shocked that we're still using the figure 10 million. Now, Undocumented's the key word there, the key adjective, because undocumented simply means these are people who are not citizens of the country, entered the country, do not have a visa or any other documentation. So I guess you could say if they're getting processed, right, they're getting their phone, a visa card, piece of paper, manila envelope, I don't know, folks have said that they all are carrying around the same little package, right? And then saying, okay, we'll see you in court in 10 years, which you pointed out on the program. I guess they're, quote, documented, not undocumented. But you can't believe, can you? It doesn't seem plausible that, hell, five or six years ago we were using the figure 10 million undocumented. You're telling me we haven't increased that number? Because we know that 10 million, it's thought have crossed over. All those are documented. At least. At least. I, so I'm not buying that. But regardless of the figure, so here's what the candidate said. Governor Ron DeSantis said, if I'm president, there will be no amnesty. Nikki Haley said, we got to deport them. Now, okay, that we won't grant any amnesty is a little different than deporting. I mean, not granting amnesty amnesty is a declaration of inaction. Deporting is a declaration of action. I don't believe for a minute if she's president, she's going to organize and commission and fund some sort of incredible effort to go round up 10 million people and ship them out of the country. How long have you been hearing that, Rhino? And I mean, I can't remember when I haven't heard it, honestly. In presidential politics, right? Yeah, we're going to deport all the illegals. No, you're not. Heck, I wonder how many of them are working on the assembly line somewhere. And then she, of course, went into a discussion of how they passed E-Verify in her state, and they want to make that federal law. And Okay, that's fine. But really, she did say, yeah, we have to deport them. That's what we're, that's what we're going to do. On the other hand, I, I got a little... Uh, a little myth that Governor DeSantis, when he when he jumped on this word, something we've talked about here on the program for entitlement. Because the question came up about Social Security. What would you do about it? Valid question. And he went in. He launched into this um, uh, just assault on the on the word entitlement, and uh, and how that gets. That's a word that is used to describe Social Security and Medicare. And he says it's not an entitlement. You paid into it. Yeah, but if you look at the the definition, okay, from the dictionary, 
the fact of having a right to something. Well, you can have a right to something because our law says you have a right to it, I guess, even though you did nothing to earn it, such as pay in. But you could also have a right to something. So the definition doesn't make the discernment. You can have a right to something because you have, in fact, paid your way to earn into it. I just thought that was unnecessary. I know that that it's semantics, and you've seen this before where people, it's not entitlement, I paid into it. Right, that's why you're entitled to it. So uh, that's really not addressing the core question, which is we got financial problems. Now what I've heard Governor DeSantis say, and Vivek Ramaswamy as well, and Donald Trump, honestly, all we got to do is drill oil and we can fix that problem. But nobody's ever connected the dots and said, yeah, okay, if we drill oil, this is how we're going to close the $90 trillion unfunded liability in Social Security and Medicare. Nobody's ever said that. Governor DeSantis also said something that really aggravated me. He suggested, uh, um, I guess, a myth that is believed by a lot in this country that the Congress stole money from Social Security. That is categorically false. And I'm surprised that somebody running for president said that without really understanding the nuances and the details of how all those uh, financial machinations work between the Treasury and Social Security. It's not true. We're stepping aside for a break in the Element Well studio. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News, and then it's Speaker Pro Tem Manley Barton. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone. It's hour two of middays. We're in the Element Well studio on this Friday Eve. We welcome now to the studio. It's Speaker Pro Tem of the Mississippi House of Representatives, recently elected as such, uh, Manley Barton. Thanks for coming on there, Mr. Speaker Pro Tem. Well, thank you. It's has good. a good ring good, to it. Good. It does have a good <laughs> ring. I, I'm, I'm getting used to it. <laughs> That's awesome. Good to see you. Good to see you. It's happy to be here. Yeah, man. All right, so you guys have been meeting a little bit for uh, the last couple of weeks, but we don't have uh, committee assignments yet. And I know that takes a little while to sort through that. You've got uh, a, a big uh, group, and you got lots of committees, and you got to get everybody placed in the in the right situation. And and uh, and it does take a little time. You've got 122 members, and, and you want them to – uh, end up our land uh, in areas where they maybe even have some expertise, but certainly have some desire to serve and uh, trying to satisfy all that and then determining who the chairman, vice chairman, and all of those of all those committees are going to be. And so it just takes a little time to put it together. Yeah, it does. But uh, Representative Trey Lamar was on the program yesterday, and he indicated he felt like we'd see the official announcements perhaps tomorrow of committee chair and assignments. Well, there's certainly some anticipation that it's going to be, you know, this week. So, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll know in the morning, okay. you know, for sure. Okay. But uh, couldn't, you know. All right. 
Well, we'll we'll see what happens then, and then I guess it's uh, really start getting to work in earnest at that point. It's kind of limited on what you can do right now, right, until you get that sorted out. Well, you know, especially at the beginning of a new term. So, uh, you know, we're going to be two weeks into the session, and, um, you know, wouldn't be a lot of bills to handle uh, even next week. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, the first thing you got to do is the committee chairman call meetings and what they call do the organization uh of the of the committee everybody get to meet everybody uh the the committee uh assistants the lawyers who meet with the committees the they elect a secretary from the body and um that's all during that organizational meeting but probably most of those will probably happen next week okay chairman will try to get everybody together have that organizational meeting uh and then when they do have some bills that they can do something with when they actually meet that part of it's behind them and they can uh, start moving forward and actually handling bills. Yeah. Um, you've also got uh, several new folks, of course, where this is the first session of a brand-new term, and so we've got uh, lots of so-called freshmen that uh, have entered uh, the House of Representatives. And, uh, you know, I've chatted with some of them just um, down there at the Capitol, and right now they're just trying to soak it all in, I think. I, yeah, we have 25 okay. uh, new. I think there's, um, if I remember right, 17 Republicans, 8 Democrats. Okay. Um, most of them have not been around the process, and and I would say the vast majority of them have not been around yeah. the process. Yeah. Uh, certainly, they come in with some sense of how they think it's going to be, and, and generally they, they may get some of it right. It just takes a little time to really understand the whole process. Yeah. And so, you know, they need a little help along the way, sure. and, and certainly the senior members that's been there a while is always available to, you know, try to help them understand something. And uh, so I always encourage the, the new ones. I said, look, even if you're not on a committee, just go sit in on some of the meetings and just see how the the chairman handles bills and, yeah. and so forth. And uh, and I think that's a great way to, to to start understanding, you know how how the how the house operates. Well, that's good advice. I mean, it can be a little overwhelming, you, you know, especially when the pace starts to pick up, um, as you know. And it and in the later part of the session, it picks up <laughs> pretty good. It it can get it can get. Uh, I, I call it like the old wild west at times. I mean, it's just yeah. everybody's running, you know. Yeah. Well, I caught uh, some of Speaker of the House Jason White's uh, address last week after having been sworn in, and then I caught yours as well. By the way, I want to compliment you on that. I thought it was excellent, and uh, I, I know you put a lot of thought into that, and it, it showed. And it was uh, it, it it brought in kind of the personal aspect of thing of what it's like to work in that in that chamber with the other members and and work together to get things done. So I just want to let you know that I, I was there and fortunate to be well, there. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I I I. I uh, I, I had kind of the basis of what I wanted to say, and and but then, as as you, I mean, you've given speeches, and and sometimes a speech is more important than another speech. And That's I right. thought that one was important, no and, doubt. And I and I wanted to spend the time to make sure I got uh, across what I wanted to say, yeah. and. Um, and, and I and, and I, I felt good about it. I felt good. And, and I've had a lot of compliments, and I appreciate you that. You should. And I thought, um, you know, what I called the speaker, and of course I, I went back and, and, and read that and talked to other members, and uh, he's got an ambitious agenda. I, see, I think that's what we could say, does he not? I, yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, you know, there's been a number of issues through the years that's, that's almost got to the finish line that didn't get there. Uh, I think he wants to go back and readdress some of those things and see if we can see if we can find a solution 
um, there's solutions out there. We've just got to we just got to get there. Yeah. You know, we know what we we're still in some cases we're still identifying the problem. Yeah, you know, sure. And so um, and, and you gotta you gotta know what the problem is before you can solve it. And so so some of that's going on. He, but he has he has set a very ambitious agenda, I think. And and I believe at this point that the that the uh, that the caucus is is behind him. Um, so we're we're going to see. That's my it. sense too. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. And and um, so I'm I'm looking forward to it. I think it's it's going to be some work and it's going to be some challenges. And um, you know that's just that's part of the process. You yeah. just get there and you try to work your way through it. You know the 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 comment I get probably more than any uh, Representative Barton from. Uh, just the public in general that have, have kind of observed Speaker of the House Jason White, and I guess they're contrasting that a little bit to former Speaker of the House uh, Philip Gunn, is that uh, Speaker White seems to be open to you know talking about anything, even issues with which he may not agree, even even points of view with which he may not agree. He seems to uh, really support the idea of, of open, civil, respectful, positive, productive discourse. I think you're right on the money. Uh, I, I know uh, the speaker well. He and I have been friends a long time. We've worked on a lot of stuff together. Um, he he is a person who is willing to sit down with anybody, yeah. listen to them, talk to them, hear their ideas. And, um, you know, I, I, I think he's going to be very successful because of that. I, yeah. I, I think um, he's willing to listen and he's willing to, you know, hear people out and hear their ideas. Yeah. And so, uh, so I, th- I think he's gonna. I think he's gonna be real good. He also encouraged, as you well know, uh, the members to establish relationships with those on the other side of the aisle. To you know, to start having open and, and honest debate, and not just go to your corners and I feel this way, you feel that way, and we just can't reconcile that. Yeah. You know, I. I, I thought about this this morning, and yeah. I, I hesitated to uh, sort of throw, throw it out there. My grandson is from uh, – I have a grandson that lives in Fairhope. He actually is a senior in high school this year, coming back, paging for me in a, in a week or so. Uh, but he and a friend of his paged for me last year. And uh, the Fairhope newspaper heard about them, and, and so they asked him if they could interview him. And they agreed, and so uh, the newspaper sent him a, a, a kind of a question – four, five, six questions, and yeah. said, you know, answer these questions, then they wanted to interview him. And the very first question was, what was the thing that surprised you the most about being there? And both my grandson and his friend independently answered the question exactly the same way, different wording perhaps. The thing that surprised him the most was that the Republicans and Democrats all seemed to be friends. <laughs> Shocked at that, huh? Well, yeah, and, and shouldn't be it, that way. Well, it shouldn't. They shouldn't have been shocked. Yeah, but that's they right. were because of what they see on the national news. Yeah, and uh, uh, so and, much vitriol, so yeah. much hostility. Yeah, yeah, and so um, and and I think I think our chamber is uh, has gotten along even when we just have serious disagreements. I think at the end of the day, we we are still friends. I think we we still get along and we try to work with each other when we can. Yeah. Well, I, and I appreciate that, and that doesn't mean you have to compromise your principles. No, whatsoever. no, not at all. No, I, look, I, you know, I have a friend who used to say, "Look, I, I disagree with my wife half the time." <laughs> you know, so so it's not unusual for you to have differences of opinion. Sure, you know, so. absolutely. All right. So uh, speaking of which, uh, what what are you thinking? What's kind of been on your mind is is uh, the the issues, the matters, the legislation that you want to pursue and are, are prioritizing. 
Well, certainly, you know, if you go back to uh, Speaker's uh, uh, speech last week, where he kind of laid out a, a number of things that that uh, that we want to address, and and certainly the. 600-pound gorilla in the room is the, is the state retirement system. Which is what the title of my article was, of course. That's and and <laughs> so, um, and, and, and you know, we're in the very, very, very early stages of, of, uh, of trying to figure out what, where, where we end up, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and identifying the problem, making everybody understand that there is a problem, um, is 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 where we are right now. Okay, you know, and and so we're going to get to a solution, but but that that solution may be somewhat complex, but it's going to be down the road somewhere. Okay, certainly within the next couple of months, yeah. but it's just going to take a little while to get there. Okay, but uh, but I think it's something that's going to be right on top of the radar, and and uh, will be something we'll start working on very diligently probably just within the next week or so. I get that impression as well. Uh, we're going to continue our discussion with the Speaker Pro Tem, Manley Barton, after this break. Stay with us. We're in the Element Well studio. Middays with Gerard Gibbons. On Super Talk Mississippi. Little Jimmy Buffett there, bumping us into this segment on midday. Uh, middays, pardon me. We are visiting with Speaker Pro Tim of the Mississippi House of Representatives, Manley Barton. So, I, I'm glad to hear uh, Representative Barton that there is uh, there's knowledge that we got to do something about PERS, and and um, a lot of folks have read this little piece I did, and it, I I think it's going to require a multifaceted approach, honestly, to address the uh, the funding challenges that the system has. I don't think there's like there's just one uh, silver bullet, as Rhino likes to say, panacea that says, oh yeah, we just do that and we fixed it, we can go home. Uh, it's more complex than that, and I, and I applaud you for recognizing that, and, and I, I believe the members will consider multiple uh, different options. Well, we're you know, we're in the very early, very early discussions about uh, what to do. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think I want to kind of go back and emphasize, you know, the, 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 I guess the single greatest thing that we, we've, we've got to make people understand is that there, that there is a problem. Yeah, and, and, that's right. And, uh, and that, and, and doing nothing is not an option. We, you know, there is, there just is, gets worse. It, it, yeah, it's not going to get any better on its own. And, and we've got to address it and it's time to do that. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, please continue. What, what else is kind of on your, uh, on your radar for, uh, legislative priorities in this session? Well, you know, we've done a number of things uh, over the last uh, 12 years that have to do with uh, infrastructure. Okay. I think we'll continue looking at uh, the infrastructure needs in the state. Uh, the gas tax has not changed, and so we've – I think we have used some uh, uh, ideas to increase funding over in those areas. We did that through the lottery 
creating the Emergency Road and Bridge Fund and and doing some other diversions on the use tax back to the cities and the yeah. counties to allow them to do some infrastructure uh, with some of that money. And, and, and I think we're going to continue to look at those kind of things okay. and, and try to be innovative in, in how, we, we, uh, how we fund these projects across the state. Okay. We, we, we've got a really good – I think we've got a really good transportation system, and, uh, and, and we've just got to maintain it and, and expand it where we need to. And, and we do have some areas that, that uh, where the traffic counts are up and people are moving into, and we need to do some things to help those, uh, help those areas. You know, in, in, uh, in terms of, 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 uh, of what we, I think, will probably be part of the larger discussion this time is uh, on the education side, uh, you know, obviously the, the the school choice issue is out there. That's going to be given a, a lot of discussion, and uh, I, I don't know where we end up there. But but as a part of that whole uh, discussion, will probably be some additional things. And the speaker spoke to this uh, a week or so ago. Uh, as a part of that entire discussion. You know, we've got accountability models, the funding formula. There's a number of other things that probably, if you're going to have the discussion, let's fix it all. And and we've come very close a couple of times to um, to to getting somewhere with the with the funding formula. There's a couple of things that yeah. probably need to be adjusted. And and I think I think we have a real opportunity this year to uh, to do that. Okay. And, and that's and I, that's pretty aggressive, I think. That's a that's a big issue. And, it is. And so you got to get a lot of people on board. Uh, it's it's not the, it's not simple math. It's it's a little complex. It is, and so you got to get uh, everybody to understand what you want to do and 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 what those changes mean and and how they affect your school district, my school district, and the kids that go there. Okay, and uh, and certainly we need to look at the kids in failing school districts, and you know that's been part of the discussion from day one. And you know I think everybody wants to do something. We haven't done anything, and so I think it's time we we take that step and we we try to address uh the needs of those first and and then see where that takes us okay certainly um it does appear at least uh early on here that uh speaker of the house jason white seems to be more open to exploring uh, the possibility of expanding education freedom and education sure. choice in in the state um it, it always appeared to me honestly that um speaker of the house philip gunn was um, less cool to the idea, um, it, you know. It just had just has different philosophy and different thoughts about that. And then I think over in the Senate, that that's where you run into the the, the biggest roadblocks against getting anything done meaningful on school choice. Well, I, you know, I'm not worried about that today. Yeah, I, you know, I understand. What, what I what I what I hope and I believe if 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 we can if we can craft this properly and and you know compromises. People hate that word, but but that's just part of the sure. part of the process. And trying to get their ideas and our ideas and and come to a place that we can all agree to, um, I, I'm I'm confident today. I'm not I'm I used the wrong word. I'm hopeful today that that we will get there and find a place, find the sweet spot, so okay. to speak. Fair enough. And um, and and you know, and part of that, you know, is kind of going back to the general discussion when you start talking about the the accountability models and all that. Uh, you know, we you know we've really spent a lot of money and a lot of time the last couple of years on the career and technical training, the vocational stuff, workforce development, and and that. Is really not a very 
big part, if any, part of the accountability model. So, yeah. th- so the schools that are pursuing it, are, are in, to some degree, are getting uh, penalized for doing yeah. that. So we've got to. There's some things there we've got to fix and change and and help them. Uh, industry is 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 good with this. They love it. They want us to to do this, and uh, and 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 we. I think we've got a good start. We've done some. I think some really good things over the last couple of years, and including those teachers and those training and that those uh, uh, philosophies within the accountability model I think is important but that would all be part of this broader okay. discussion so I think the point the takeaway here that I'm hearing from you is that the the plan to I guess just deal with education address it which is roughly half of our general fund spending sure. for public education it, it the scope of that is way beyond just education choice you want to address the funding formula the accountability and some of the other just uh, issues that you're hearing about from yeah, constituents, yeah. from teachers, from educators, I and, mean, from a cross-section. And, you know, we may, you know, we may get part of that done. Okay. And, and that's okay. okay. But, but I think if – I think while we're there and while we were discussing it, I think we have an opportunity to try to make some uh, improvements in all of those areas sure. while, we're, while we're discussing it. Sure. I mean, it's hard not to talk education policy when it's half of your budget. That's right. I mean, so that's, you, that's you, true. There's always something going on there. Uh, the governor made it pretty clear that full elimination of the income tax, he, he seems to continue to promote that as his top priority, something he'd at least like to get done. Your thoughts about that? Well, um, I, I certainly think that there is an appetite uh, to further make changes to the income tax uh, rates. We're, you know, we, we, a couple of years ago, we cut about 550 uh, uh, at least that was the estimate around 550 million. Get us down to a four um, percent flat rate. Actually, two more years before we get yeah, there. So, right. so anything we might do now would be at the end of that cycle anyway. So, right. I think we got plenty of time to discuss it. Um, I think there probably will be another push this year to do something. Okay. Um, uh, but in addition to that, I, I know on the campaign trail this year. Uh, a little bit of talk about income tax, but a lot of talk about grocery tax. Hear that so, too. Yeah. So that's that seems to be a very popular idea. Okay. Uh, and 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 I guess the one thing that I would say is, and this is certainly to the municipalities, um, if 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 the legislature did pursue something on the grocery tax side, that's a big income producer for for especially for small cities. And um, but it would be the goal if we did that. It would be the goal to 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 make those cities whole. So, okay. So From the state. A, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So so the state the state would take the hit. Okay. And and um, and and we have a a general idea of what that hit would be. I mean, there's been some numbers thrown around the last couple of years, and um, and so so I think that probably will be discussed. Um, and I couldn't say today if we'd go the income tax route or the grocery tax route, but I doubt if we'd do both of them in one year. I think I'm not sure I, it's possible financially no. speaking. Well, so. and, but I and I think I think caution is is good. Yeah, you know? and and uh, we just don't want to get too far down the road Got and it. find ourselves in you know some kind of financial. What about the ballot measure process? What do you think about that? I'm being honest. I I think we I think we fixed that. You know, I I'm, I'm encouraged by what I hear. I I know a lot of the legislators have heard from their constituents, and um, you know, the the biggest difference in in the House and the Senate the last couple of years has just been the number of signatures. signatures yeah, and and I I think there's a compromise there someplace. Okay, you know, I, and I've said before, you know, whatever where wherever we land, 
you know, the ballot initiative needs to be hard, but it doesn't need to be impossible. Okay. And, you know, it doesn't need to be easy. And, you know, if, if it was easy, you'd have 25, 30 things on the ballot every four years or every maybe every year. Yeah. And so uh, so it, so it, it, there needs to be a little bit of a hoop to jump through okay. to, to get it. But but it, but it doesn't need to be impossible. And so uh, appreciate you coming on. Speaker, uh, Speaker Pro Tem, Manley Barton has been our guest. Appreciate you coming on, sir. And I, I'm sure I'll see you some more at the Capitol and especially appreciate you sharing your thoughts on all these critical issues to the state of Mississippi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're coming right back, folks, in the Element Well studio. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Too much love drives a man insane. You broke my wind, but what a thrill. Goodness, get wrecked, you're quitting balls of fire. We are back in the Element Well studio. We have been informed that Senator Jeremy England will not be able to join us today. We'll get him back on on another time. Um, so, on the ceasefire text line, Paula Meridian says a gas tax increase would be to me the most fair way to increase revenue. We'll keep this in mind, though, Paul. Uh, all that revenue goes to the Department of Transportation. That that does not fund. Uh, the general fund expenses. So now that doesn't mean you couldn't enact law that would increase the gas tax and by some amount, some percentage essentially, and divert that amount commensurately to the general fund. But that wouldn't come close to covering the general fund. You would have to just thinking through it here, Rhino. You'd have to increase the gas tax six x. If you eliminated the income tax and the sales tax in lieu of that. I mean, I'm not suggesting that's what Paul is saying. I'm just trying to give you the reference point of the, the math of what we generate from the at the pump from fuel taxes. It is true that a lot of people pay that tax besides Mississippians, uh, folks driving through stop, as you know. It's the same thing with so-called lodging and tourism taxes. Lots of municipalities have a layer on top of sales taxes, so-called lodging taxes, um, to just fund their state, uh, pardon me, their city municipal operations. Uh, and most of that is paid for by those that travel into the state and stay in a hotel. Of course, that sometimes happens inside the state. Uh, if you think about that, that could be intrastate, where somebody travels from one part of the state to another, stays in a hotel, pays those taxes. But I would, would submit that I think most people that that are staying in the state's hotels and motels are coming from out of state, or you know, not citizens of the state, traveling into the state for various purposes. Mike in Collinsville says, please, Lord, let's eliminate income tax before we tackle the grocery sales tax. That would be the biggest bang for economic growth and retention of our workforce. 
And it's something that uh, I, I have talked about as well, and I, I actually agree with, that you're going to get more economic impact on the long term. I think that's the way you described it yesterday, Rhino, was short term versus long term. You get the short term sort of sugar high from eliminating or reducing the sales tax on groceries, but that doesn't really have the same impact over the long term just from an economic development perspective and, and capital investment and so forth. Uh, new projects in the state, yeah, income taxes are a bigger factor. But I can also tell you that, you know, just being involved in economic development somewhat uh, here in Madison County with the Economic Development Authority, you don't really hear that a lot from prospective businesses, companies looking to locate in the state, make an investment in the state. It's, um, It's energy. It's workforce. It's other quality of life aspects, schools, hospitals, crime, it's uh, transportation infrastructure, that tends to outweigh the income tax environment, the tax overall tax environment. And I think that's to a great extent because even though I'm with them, I'd like to see the income tax eliminated, our tax is not so egregious that it's a factor. We're all, we already have a relatively low tax burden compared to the other 50 states. So I've never heard of a situation where we lost out on an economic development project because the suitor said your taxes are too high. You can't say that about very high tax states such as New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, California, etc., where the taxes are ridiculously high. And they're, in fact, they're experiencing an exodus from those states. So I think uh, our, our challenge, our goal should be how do we participate in the good fortunes uh, we're seeing in other states where they are re- the recipient of those relocations. Um, what did you say here? Thomas said something earlier about the taxes. Uh, where did that go, Thomas? It had to do with, uh, yeah, didn't he vote for the income tax elimination bill under Gunn a few years back? Why the change of heart? So, again, we we got to think about which iteration of the bill, right? So the, the bill, the first bill out of the chute that would have seen sales taxes increase slightly uh, and, of course, paved the way to eliminate the income tax in a short period of time, that was, of course, widely supported in the House, did not get approved in the Senate. And then we saw it. I mean, you and I saw it on our text line or just in in interviewing members of the legislature who would share what they were hearing from their constituents is, Wow, I'm not for raising the sales taxes whatsoever on anything. I mean, they got a lot of pushback on that. And then we got, you remember, new iterations of the legislation that uh, started adjusting that. Okay, well, we're not going to do so much adjustment on the sales tax, if at all, side, but we're going to phase in elimination of the income tax over a much longer period of time based on, on achievement of certain revenue targets, which, in my view, pretty much meant we'll never really see it fully eliminated. I I didn't see a path to achieve those targets over that long period of time. Uh, But that largely was in response uh, to the objections expressed by so many retirees. We talked about that, that don't pay taxes on retirement income. They, of course, said, well, you're raising my sales taxes 
thus my net effect is I get a tax increase. And then we had other industries that get special sales tax treatment, automobile retail, uh, farm implements, energy, uh, logging. I can't remember all of them, but you know, there's just lots of laws passed through the years by our legislature, signed by our governors through the years that grant all these various exceptions. And uh, that was seen as, okay, where well, you're increasing sales taxes on my industry, on my livelihood, what have you, um, such as agriculture, uh, in exchange for cutting my income taxes, I don't like it. So, and then uh, the other thing, Thomas, is, is since this uh, this idea of cutting taxes is, has been front and center, a lot of people have just come out and said, I'd rather see my grocery sales taxes cut than my income taxes. I actually think that that's probably a more widely held view today to some degree because of the reforms already done on income taxes. We know that lots of folks got removed from the roles of paying income taxes just with the reforms reforms that we passed two years ago, eliminating the 4% bracket and then phasing down the 5% bracket to 4% over three years. I think we're in year one of that right now. So... Uh, and, and the one that the one thing that keeps coming back to me is that interview we had at the end of the last session with Representative Becky Curry. You remember when I asked her point blank if a bill were introduced today to eliminate the sales tax on groceries, how do you think that would do in the House? She said it passed this afternoon. Remember that right? She said it passed this afternoon. And so it seems like that's got a lot of traction. I, I like I said, I don't think that's in the best interest of the state from a long-term perspective, relative to what cutting the income tax or eliminating could do. Sure, cutting any taxes is always welcome, and the governor said that. He said, you send a bill to my desk, it cuts taxes, I'm signing it. Even, I mean, I assume that meant cutting sales taxes on groceries, even though that's not really where his head is from what he said on the campaign and in his inaugural speech, and I was there at his victory party as well, he said, yeah, I want to see us eliminate the income tax. I think that's still a high priority. I don't think I'm misrepresenting that from the governor's office whatsoever. So um, what else uh, did you say here, Thomas? Uh, hopefully on their deathbed, these angry boomers will realize their greed is the reason their kids move off and they had no relationship with their grandkids, all because they were greedy, same when it comes to purse. So I guess, Thomas, you're saying that I'm – uh, an angry boomer, and that I'm greedy, and that my kids moved off. Well, you're wrong about all that, of course. My kids live here, and um, neither of them have any children, so I don't have any grandchildren at this point. Uh, I mean, define greedy. What's greedy mean? I don't. I don't feel like anything that um, I or anybody that I know that went through a similar path in life. We're greedy in pursuing maximum economic benefit. All that was done fair and square by creating value for society. So I don't know what you're talking about. You say that a lot. He says, no, I'm saying that about those who oppose income tax elimination. I don't think that's it, uh, honestly, Thomas. I really don't. I think there are legitimate concerns about how that would affect our budget. 
and whether or not it is sustainable. I, I, I've never met anybody that says, yeah, I'm totally opposed to elimination of the income tax, even those that that have not voted for it. I've heard more of them express concerns about the hole it would blow in our budget. And that's something that's got to be debated. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studio. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Games, that's it, baby. We are back in the Element Well studio. Thomas says it would increase their grocery tax and be a net loss. Well, well, Thomas, are you, I guess, criticizing people who don't want their taxes to go up? Because that's the way they see it. If if the grocery, or not just the grocery, but if sales taxes increase. Uh, in order to fund, if you will, or offset the elimination of the income tax from a revenue perspective, well, to those who don't pay income taxes, uh, they, in fact, would experience a higher tax bill. So I don't blame folks for uh, objecting to that, and including the retirees who have ex- expressed that concern. However, I would encourage them to just look at what it really means, just from a... Uh, a monetary value perspective, and we did some exercises here uh, on the show, and I collected data from some retirees, their, their actual household budget, if you will. I think folks are surprised to find out how much of their outlays are not subject to sales tax. Because I think there's a kind of a misconception that, well, gosh, I'm going to Pay grocery, not grocery, pardon me, I'm so stuck on that, sales taxes on pretty much everything I make because I spend everything I, I make, and that's not true because most of what you spend your money on, honestly, is not subject to sales tax, such as your rent or your mortgage or your insurance or your energy or your gasoline. You just go down the list. So if you start looking at, well, how much do I really spend out of my, uh, my budget, my household budget? on goods and services that are subject to sales tax is not as much as you think. And so, uh, you know, the average kind of person in the state, it's maybe $100 to them. And I'm not saying that's zero, and that is a net increase, but I, I get the objection. But I would appeal to them on this basis that this would help your children, your working children and grandchildren and future generations for that small amount. And I'm not trying to downplay that whatsoever. Uh, $100, $200, whatever it is, a year now we're talking about. But, but that's, I think, a way to, to get something done that would be highly effective in economic development, economic growth in the state. But nonetheless, you know, the, the House responded and came back with some amended versions of the plan that, uh, again, would have phased in the elimination over a much longer period of time in exchange for not adjusting sales taxes. 
Now, it should be pointed out that even though our state sales tax is kind of in line with most of the country, it's 7%, we're unique in Mississippi in that we don't have too many municipalities, if any, well, I shouldn't say if any, there are only a few, a handful of municipalities and counties that layer on additional sales taxes. And you've got to get, I'm pretty sure, permission from the legislature to do that. Uh, whereas when you look at, say, neighboring Tennessee, Florida, Alabama, uh, Louisiana, almost every community, municipality, county, parish, they've got their own piece that gets layered onto it. And so when you look at the total all-in sales tax burden, we are actually lower than those other states. They all come in at about 9%. Because you've got to add on to it what you truly pay the cash register, which includes the municipal and the, and the county or parish additions to the state sales tax is the way that works. So it's got to be considered. I'll gladly pay 20% grocery tax if income tax is elim- eliminated and it leads to opportunity for my kids in Mississippi. But you're, you're alone. No, I shouldn't say you're alone. You're in the minority there, Thomas. That's what you don't get, man. The, the government, you see, that's what they do. They vote on the basis of their constituents. They're supposed to, at least. And when they serve their constituents and, they, and they're hearing, hey, I'd rather eliminate the grocery tax, sales tax, than I would the income tax, that's why that's on the table, because they're hearing that. I'm quite sure that's why Representative Becky Curry said right in that chair, yeah, it passed today. I'll never forget that, Rhino. I know, I know you and I kind of looked at each other. Like, I don't know that we expected that. I think it passed this afternoon is actually what she said. And I think she's got a pretty good pulse on you know the rest of the chamber there in that respect. Dave says, actually, there's a tax on gasoline, both federal and state. It adds 20 cents a gallon here in Mississippi. However, I believe the sales tax is the fairest tax there is. Well, that's true, Dave, and Monticello. I'm simply making the point that that, none of that revenue funds general fund expenditures. That's all I'm trying to say. That doesn't fund education, doesn't fund Medicaid, doesn't fund corrections, doesn't fund all the other agencies um, in the state. Those are funded from revenues received from both the income tax and sales tax, and there's some other fees as well into that mix. But in general, it's income tax and sales tax. That accounts for 75-80% of total revenue. That funds that funds general fund expenditures. What you're paying at the pump in terms of taxes, that specifically funds roads and bridges and transportation infrastructure. We are stepping aside for a break. In fact, it's top of the hour. It's noon here in Mississippi. It's Fox News, Super Talk News next, and then an hour of talk. Stay with us. Get ready. Get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio. We thank you so much for joining us. 
It is uh, hour three of the program on this. Friday Eve. All right. So on the ceasefire text line, taxes in Mississippi. No income tax on any Social Security income. No sales tax and groceries. I assume this is kind of a wish list. No income tax but raise effective income level. My wife and I lived in Jackson and Hattiesburg from 64 to 88. Then moved to northwest Florida. Saved about 4500 a year and $88. Car tax, much less. No sales tax on groceries. No income tax. Back in Hasburg area, last 10 years. So, um, of course, we don't tax Social Security income. We do have sales taxes on groceries. You know, when you talk about raising the effective income level, just keep in mind that under the reform that's currently being implemented, uh, it would be $10,000. And by the way, if you're a married couple, each gets $10,000 if they work, if they have income. If they don't. Um, you just have one source of income, you get 10. But nonetheless, the, the taxes are, are levied on income over 10. And by the way, you also have a the personal exemption that you have to apply into there as well. So I can't remember the figure. I had all this memorized, and we were talking about this so much when it was going down. But it's like first 30-something thousand in a married couple situation are, are tax-free, income tax-wise, once it's fully implemented. Um. And so, okay, you could certainly raise that threshold, but you you got to consider what does that do from a revenue perspective. And then, of course, I know folks would say, "Well, we just need to cut spending." Okay, what cut what spending? We just, uh, as you've heard members of the legislature discuss, we just increased teacher pay considerably in the state. Should we have not done that? Should we reduce teacher pay? And, you know, and I know folks can open up a can of worms and get into all kinds of details about expenses we can cut. I, I'd submit to you that at the end of the day, it probably wouldn't amount to a whole lot relative to when you're talking about 50% of revenue, which is what 36% revenue, which is what um, income taxes are. 50% roughly is sales taxes, somewhere thereabout. So... Uh, and also, just point out in Florida, while they don't tax groceries, their sales tax on other goods, because they add on, again, they layer on municipal and county taxes, it's higher. Also, their real property taxes are higher. They also have some other taxes we don't, such as tax on rent. We don't have that. So, But, you know, I don't know how fair it is to compare Mississippi to Florida, for example. It's more fair to, fa- to compare Mississippi to Cal- uh, pardon me, Florida to California, like we saw a couple of weeks ago when Newsom and DeSantis debated. And here's why I say that. Florida's got something going for it. It's called sunshine. You'd be surprised at how valuable that is. It's extremely valuable. We don't have that. So it's weather. California, too. And there's a reason why so many Americans flock to California Besides gold, it's the weather. And so many industries set up shop in California, it's the weather. It's got a lot to do with it. And California is a big enough state and has a diverse enough climate so that you can be on the beach, and by that afternoon you can be snow skiing, literally. Uh, we, we don't have that. And, and you, I think you have to take stock of exactly how valuable that is. Florida has that climate. And uh, has a lot of public companies that are, are based there as well. It's a place where a lot of people want to live. Um, so that accounts for a lot. And being there on the water, of course, counts for a lot. It's a big draw. And, and so what I'm saying is they produce a whole lot of sales taxes. 
because of that. The tourism is incredible because of all the various attractions across the state. So it's people coming from all over the world into the Sunshine State, spending their money, generating lots of sales taxes. They don't need income taxes. Now, now California is different than that. They just are stupid in the way they run the government, and they have that same benefit, but they spend so much. I mean, they just can't stop the spending. They, there's not anything they've seen yet they can't figure out a way to spend money on. And now they got a $60 billion deficit. So it's, it's a more accurate comparison, although the population of Florida is a little more than half that of California. Still, it's, it's big population. And Texas is the same way. Now, guys, if you ever spent any time looking at taxes in Texas, real property taxes are out of sight. They're significant. But they don't have an income tax. So the revenue's got to come from somewhere. It's not like, oh, well, they're just way more efficient than we are in Mississippi in operating their government. I would say that compared to California, New York, the blue states, no doubt. But relative to a Florida and a Texas, I don't think so. I mean, there's some nuances there you could dig into, but it's not that as much as it is. They just have the benefit of uh, a whole lot of people spending a lot of money generating sales taxes at a higher rate than we do. And then exorbitant property taxes, real property taxes, not uh, property taxes on vehicles because we, we have that, and car tax, and of course... There's a lot of people that have said they'd like to see that in lieu of. You've heard that, right? In lieu of elimination or reduction of the income tax, they'd rather see a reduction or elimination of car tax. Of course, it's different buckets because income taxes go to the state and car tax go to the cities and counties and school districts. So it's and a Surprise, surprise, the vast majority of people want changes and reforms to taxes that would benefit them the most. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Well, so that's guess what? That's human nature, is it not? Sure it is. It's just human nature, and you have to factor that in to public policy. Human nature. I kind of like the tax on rent. Renters seem to slide sometimes, says Paul and Meridian. But again, that comes back to our conversation earlier in the week about game theory. Like in a vacuum, sure, rent taxed makes some sense. But in a political reality, the second someone on the Republican side of the aisle proposes that, all the Democrats and their lapdogs, the media, will instantly start demonizing Republicans as, oh, look what you're doing to the low-income people of wherever you are. And, and that's to, to Mailman Clayton's point. He says um, the only fair tax is a consumption tax. And, and I think that's, that's fairly commonly believed, I would say, in, in um, conservative think tanks. They'd like to see a consumption tax and oh, yeah. of an income tax. I, I understand. Because I people you. that don't pay any income taxes, whether that be non-citizens or non-residents or people that make their money through illicit means, they still got to buy bread. Yeah. Still got to buy milk. Still got to buy groceries. And so they, they contribute. They have some skin in the game uh, is the way that's kind of viewed. Um, but it's considered regressive, to your point, that you just said a moment ago, which is that right now, if that would be the approach to producing revenue, a lot of those people don't pay any income taxes because it is, it is quite progressive, as is the case here in Mississippi. When you look at 
uh, own, taxable income only above $10,000 subject to the income tax, but that's after you take the, the uh, personal exemption. And, uh, and like I said, I think for an individual, essentially when you count the personal exemption plus um, the $10,000 um, taxable income threshold before taxes are applied, it, you're like your first $18,000 of, of income is tax-free from an income tax perspective. So if you were to, uh, for example, eliminate the income tax system and replace it with just taxes on consumption, those people who presently aren't paying income taxes because of the progressive structure would uh, start paying taxes, higher taxes overall, because of their consumption. Now, some people may say, I'm fine with that. But the political, practical reality is what you pointed out, is that that just ain't going to happen. And even if you look at the fair tax, which a lot of people really supported, that came up yesterday or last night in the debate um, because that is something that Ron DeSantis supports is, uh, is a fair tax. But when you look into it, how it works, this prebate structure, essentially, it still puts all the tax burden on the higher incomes. You know, I'm not trying to say applying game theory and looking at what your opponent is going to say is the objection to good policy. I'm just saying it seems like we don't have any any talking heads, any politicians, anybody in, in, in political leadership positions that seems to want to craft an argument against what the other side is going to say. And it's obvious they're going to say it, so why not craft a debate? Why not craft your argument against that? Yeah. It's an extra layer of work, but it's something you'll have to do to get the policy implemented. Uh, agree. Uh, I still come back to, you know, what what is what's the political reality of any action? And it, you cannot, you just can't walk away from that. You can't abandon that and avoid that. And I was a little surprised that Governor DeSantis brought that up again last night because it's already been tried and it got it, it didn't make it past the first day, I don't think. So we're coming right back with more in the Element Well studio. Bring the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk, Mississippi. I'm seeing news, by the way, that President Trump was actually allowed to address the court today, because I, I thought the ruling was that he was not going to be, but he did. He got five minutes, and he's going to have a news conference this afternoon. That's interesting. So that's just breaking. Also, we got, um, we've been talking a lot about state matters, which is great today. Um, we got inflation numbers today. And you know what we're learning is that it's really hard to get from 3% and change annual inflation rate down to the Fed's target of 2%. And that news broke this morning 
that it came in higher than expected. In fact, we saw an increase. So here's the question. Is Joe Biden going to run around the country bragging about how he's licked inflation when now we see it trending in the other direction? I don't know. But that's the risk of seizing on these, these, these announcements that are a, a point in time that don't really represent a situation where you can just declare permanent victory. And, and when you respond, I guess, in a way that corresponds with the, with the latter, you risk that, uh-oh, this thing could turn around. Now what are you going to say? You're going to take responsibility for inflation now heading in the other direction. And so watching the futures this morning, they immediately reversed when that news hit, 7.30. We just immediately reversed. We're in the green, all the futures. And that news hit the wire, boom, they turned around. And what that largely means is that the market, I think, is, is uh, factoring in six rate cuts. There's just no way we're going to see six rate cuts. They're baking that in. Maybe three? Maybe. If we get six, that's because the economy is really suffering and tanking. And the Fed sees the need to cut rates to stimulate it. That actually wouldn't be a good scenario. It would be good for interest rates, but the reason would be because there's been mass layoffs and we're seeing a significant downturn in corporate earnings. Now, former President Trump said that the run-up in the market that we've seen recently is because it anticipates him being elected. <laughs> I know you're shocked. Uh, I don't believe that, honestly. No. Yeah, Trump I, taking credit for something he has nothing <laughs> to do with? Yeah, and I, I absolutely do not uh, believe that that's it. The market is, is factoring in the expectation of, of rate cuts. That's what it's factoring in. That's why it's been rather bullish of late. I don't think that's going to be uh, the case. In fact, I think we may see a significant pullback. I, I think the funny money, the helicopter money, really not funny money, is running out. Lots of indications of that. And I think we're going to see that start to figure into corporate earnings and and just GDP overall. I don't think we're looking at a recession uh, for the first and second quarters, which would, takes two in a row. I don't see that, but maybe second and third. I do see that as a possibility. But I, um, I would caution candidates and the current president on uh, trying to detach themselves from any bad news and associate themselves with any good news on the economy because I think it's too volatile. I, I just do. Uh, you know, back to this deal about Social Security. Vivek Ramaswamy said this the other day, Rhino, last week. I, I meant uh, to share this on the show last week. This was at one of his town halls in Iowa. He's traversing the state, just like all of them are. And by the way, Governor DeSantis made the point he's visited all 99 counties. And Nikki Haley really blasted the governor on his leadership skills, he said, you got $150 million and you're not doing any better than that, that you've spent on your campaign. You're not polling any better than you are. You're not a very good leader. So they they just absolutely just assailed each other with uh, personal insults more than they did anything else, honestly. Again, I didn't see a great deal of difference on their policy positions. But Vivek Ramaswamy said this. He said... If Social Security funds 
had been under the management of bona fide wealth managers and were allowed to be invested in securities other than what law permits Social Security to invest its surpluses in, its funds in now, which are Treasury bonds. They're called S-bonds. I know I've talked about that on the show. They pay like 2.5%, nothing. And the theory is because those are backed up by the full faith and and confidence of the uh, uh, the United States, the Treasury. So it's low to no risk, essentially. The U.S. has never defaulted on a payment on its Treasury obligations. But he makes the point, had they been able to invest in securities like the market, the private markets do, he said that Social Security benefits today would be $18,000 a month. I couldn't make the math work, I just got to tell you. But that's what he said. He didn't offer any mathematical explanation. But again, his theory is, had since the beginning of Social Security, all the funds paid into the program been invested the way a private wealth manager would invest them, then we could be paying $18,000 a month in Social Security benefits today. Now, that's a complex financial exercise, I yeah. mean, because you think about how long <laughs> that uh, the program's been around. But the first thing that came to mind was, well, then how come that's not the case with, like, PERS and state-level pensions, which do, in fact, invest their money, are free to a great extent to invest their money in uh, private assets, uh, such as it, it PERS, it, uh, most of the portfolio is in equities. It feels like that argument is the perfect example of hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. You can look back and see the growth of the economy, so you can apply, and I know it's not technically compounding interest, but the fact that the growth is continual and compounding over that length of time with that amount of money, you you might could pull it off mathematically. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's just the scale of it is why it wouldn't work at the state level. There's certainly, it's possible that just the scale of the amount of money in Social Security possibly uh, could... could. There, there's more to gain, but there's also a lot more to lose, which is why I say the whole hindsight thing, looking back on it, you, you've had growth since the beginning, whereas looking forward, it's not guaranteed there will be economic growth. That's absolutely true. And, and so, now there's no doubt that if you just look at overall returns on the markets over the decades, it's better than the 2.5% that oh, you're getting yeah. from the Treasury. No doubt about that. Yeah, in simplest terms, the, the, the simplest math you could do to, to start that equation would be the average return per year. Yeah. And then the average amount available at the beginning, and then every year you just have to do the return. So, but, but then the question is, you know, are you willing to take that risk? I mean, that's that's just and the same thing applies to uh, uh, programs like PERS, Mississippi PERS. But you're talking about a much smaller scale, you know, and and the scale of the risk is smaller as well. But nonetheless, it was just it sounds point, like a 2.0 of what W was proposing, privatizing it, retirement. It kind of is. I agree. But instead of pulling it out, it would be changing the current system. Yeah. Michael in Brookhaven says, eliminating the grocery tax isn't going to affect my life. 
Well, and and so you see the problem, though, uh, Michael, that there are a lot of people out there that say, yeah, I'd prefer to see the elimination of the grocery tax um, because income taxes really don't aren't a big factor. State income taxes aren't. And for the most part, those folks uh, also aren't that much affected by federal income taxes. We got we shared that before on the program. We got half the households in the country pay no federal income taxes uh, right now. We got the I know it's crazy to this statistic shocks a lot of people, but this is directly from data published by the Department of Treasury. The top one percent Top 1% pay more income taxes, talking about income tax dollars, to the Treasury than the bottom 90%. Yet the constant refrain from the left is they got to pay their fair share. You got to start going above 90% before you start getting those numbers to cross, which is just incredible when you think about it. And that's because of our crazily progressive uh, tax structure. I mean, that's why. But half the, half the households in the country don't pay any income taxes when you factor in all the deductions, all the, actually it's the exemption, the, the um, standard deduction, and then you get into all the credits and uh, that are available, refundable credits and so forth. But when you apply all that up, stack it all up, half the households don't pay any income taxes. I'm talking about federal income taxes. And in fact, just the recent tax reforms here in the Mississippi, it actually removed lots of taxpayers off the rolls. That's why they want the grocery tax. Coming right back, half an hour left. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Well, I'm going to miss her. We are back in the Element Well studio. Matthew in Oklahoma says any possibility of cutting government positions to cover raising any taxes, that should be the start of uh, addressing any sort of shortfalls. Well, I mean, sure, Matthew, they're always um, always necessary to look at how to streamline government. But keep in mind, we just gave teacher pay raises of $250 million. Uh, and, you know, do you feel like that, that we should not have done that? Do you think we should cut pay, cut teachers? We can't fill the classrooms now, as an example. And then there are numerous other occupations in the state. We can't get enough corrections officers. We need State troopers, I mean, you can go down the list. Um, sure, we should look at how to achieve efficiencies. How can we um, eliminate duplicative expenses? No doubt about it. But I think you'll find that you could spend a lot of time and a lot of money and come up with very little gain. If it were a situation where we were running deficits, I'd say, yeah, we are out of control. But the fact that we're running surpluses... Now, for three years in a row, significant surpluses, I would say, indicates we're fairly efficient. Does that mean there's no room? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that. Of course there is. Um, But we really have not added... But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of positions at the state government level that have either not been filled or cut. 
in the last decade or so. Yeah. And uh, the, they just the don't get a whole lot of fanfare. That's right. And the so-called pins, which are just uh, the identification of these various personnel uh, occupations, these positions, these roles in government, we have shrunk that dramatically. But uh, on the flip side, that is an issue that has to be dealt with when it comes to PERS, because that's less people paying in to an already underfunded liability. Something I get into in the article, that we've seen a decline in the ratio of active workers paying into the system versus those uh, receiving benefits out, and that has steadily declined, and that has put pressure on PERS's finances. That is one of the it's same thing with Social Security. When Social Security was created, now it's a little hard to look at when it was created just because we hadn't really started seeing people uh, apply for and start to receive benefits, but was it too long ago, back in the 70s, we were at a 5-to-1 ratio of workers paying in to retirees receiving out? Now we're at 2.2-to-1, just to give you some appreciation for how those dynamics have changed. We live longer. That's something else that DeSantis said. He, he's been accused by Nikki Haley of supporting three times while he was in Congress, and it's absolutely true, raising the retirement age for Social Security. And he never really disputed that, and he didn't provide, you know, he didn't refute it, didn't dispute it. He did, however, say he didn't support raising the retirement age, and he said, well, we have declining life expectancy. That's true, but here's what's missing. It requires a little nuance there, Rhino, is that it's true that we have a decrease in life expectancy primarily because we have so many people passing away prematurely. But once they hit that 65 threshold, that life expectancy has increased. That's where Social Security comes into play. So Mr. DeSantis, that really was an invalid point that he made. Now, it the, felt like a dull arrow out of the quiver because he did that while he was in Congress, and you would think with the retirement population of Florida, they wouldn't have elected as governor if that was a big deal for retirees. That's for, true. For, for retirees. Now, what Nikki Haley said was she supported... The idea that uh, young folks are just going to have to wait longer, right? She she said specifically that, yeah, to people who are younger, I'm not for changing current benefits. I'm not for changing benefits for people that are within some number of years. She didn't specify that of retiring. But for new people and younger people, you're just going to have to appreciate that life expectancies have increased, and you're going to have to wait longer as a way to uh, address Social Security's uh, financial troubles. That's not enough, by the way, just to let you know. Um, that won't get it done. And the same thing has been discussed with respect to PERS, that we need to create a new tier. You've heard that discussed, and that new tier would have a different benefit structure, probably require you to work longer to qualify for uh, full benefits, et cetera. Um, but, and that'll help 40 years from now. won't help today and for the next 40 years where we got a, a funding problem. Uh, and so that similar. would likely be an easier sell to young people considering, I wouldn't say the vast majority, but there's a sizable chunk of young people that sincerely believe they will never see a red cent from Social Security. That's absolutely right. And and so I was... And that's not a new mindset. That's right. I mean, I'm worried about that myself, and I'm within striking distance of it. So, uh, because it's this is nothing new. Social Security's had these these financial difficulties, these headwinds for some time. Medicare as well. I was at least pleased that the question was asked very directly. What do we do about this? 
and um, and that that was a good thing, and that it, it required both candidates to at least share their thoughts. Now they did tiptoe around it a little bit, as as they have. Uh, you know, Mr. Trump says we just need to to drill, and that'll fix it. I don't see how. I really don't. I don't. I don't get the correlation there. Uh, but you know, he don't want to get into that because it's it's not politically popular. They they got into abortion as well. Was it, of course you know that's a that is a controversial issue that will come into play somewhat in the primaries, but big time in the general. That's a big distinction between the parties, and they they tried to get both of them to say something about Mr. Trump's position on abortion, where he's made it clear that the bill passed in Florida, he, he described as too harsh. And, you know, he said, we're going to get something done that everybody's going to like. So I think Nikki Haley did say you'd have to consider Donald Trump as pro-choice. said so he goes to pro-life rallies and he engages with the pro-life groups and so forth, but based on his recent statements about the matter, you know, he'd be more pro-choice. I want to say it was then DeSantis jumped on her because she, uh, her positions on that um, as well. They, I mean, they so they traded attacks on each other uh, on that matter. But I haven't seen anybody come out and offer a position that I guess would be considered by many pro-lifers as being pure pro-life, which is, yeah, total ban of abortion. None of them have come out and said that, that they favored that. Um, she did say it ought to be something that is dealt with at the state level, is what, and she said that fairly consistently. He jumped on her because she made some statement a couple of years ago about Ill- illegals crossing into the country aren't really criminals and we shouldn't treat them that way. We're, we're, um, they're just here looking for a better life. I, I think maybe that was true to a greater degree a few years ago, but today it just doesn't seem like it does. And when you see the people coming across, and you hear them being interviewed. Yeah, well, Joe Biden said to come on in. <laughs> That's pretty much what they say. So I, I don't know. Why can't the candidates just leave abortion up to the states, says Thompson Green. Well, well, that's what they said. Uh, that's what Nikki Haley said um, last night. I think, for the most part, Ron DeSantis favors that. Donald Trump's really never been specific on that. All he's just said is that what what some of the states did is too harsh, and and um, I yes. believe he has come out and said that he has detractors that believe he is too pro-life. Okay, well, so and he's worried That's about his getting, belief. All right, well, he's worried about getting elected, and he wants everybody and his brother to vote for him, and so he's trying to he's trying to thread that needle, as they say, right? Walk that fine line. I I just think it's really hard to find something that would appease, and you could appease probably the majority of people based on polls. Most people in this country do support some access to abortion. That's what the polls say in, in, in certain circumstances where the perhaps the pregnant expecting mother's life is in uh, danger or in the case of rape or incest and, and uh, maybe up to a certain point, six weeks is what the, the limit is, the restriction is in Florida, for example. And I think that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to thread that needle. I was shocked, as we talked about on the program, when Mike Pence said on the debate stage, I support a 15-week ban at the federal level. And he's always been considered a very strong supporter of, uh, of pro-life um, uh, positions, and, and he kind of changed on that. I don't, I don't 
I think a lot of people would say 15 weeks is not really pro-life. I don't know that they're pro-life people would say, yeah, we can live with 15 weeks. I don't think that's... I don't no, think... but that's about the easiest sell you could have because at that point, if you set 15 weeks in stone, you can argue that the Democrats are being barbaric for proposing abortions up to nine months. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, so it it's certainly... And I think that's what... Mr. Pence's, I think that's what his goal was. It's like, well, if we could enact something that restricts at 15 weeks at the federal level, that would stop the craziness happening in the states, like you said, which are uh, allowing abortions, you know, all the way through the term. And in some cases, seems like they're even uh, in support of once the baby's been born, at least not prosecuting the medical staff if 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 during an abortion it's botched. Gotta make it comfortable. Yeah, make it comfortable. Remember that crazy guy that was running up in uh, Virginia said that. So I mean that's just way out there, right? And I think that's what Mr. Pence's goal was that you know we could save a lot of lives by just reining that in and countering the lunacy of you know even after the baby's been born which is crazy. We're coming back with a final segment and got tickets to give away. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Thinking about is Jenny. <laughs> Want to hear a little free bird there? Speaking of uh, rock and roll, we got some tickets to give away to ZZ Top. Oh, yeah, the legendary Texas rock band is going to be live at the Brandon Amphitheater on March the 20th. Tickets for the show are going on sale tomorrow at 10 in the morning at the Brandon Amphitheater box office, or you can log into Ticketmaster.com. But now is your chance to win a pair of tickets to CZZ Top before you can even buy them. All you got to do is be the 25th person to text into the C Spire text line. That's 601-879-4395. Be the 25th person to text in cheap, cheap sunglasses. And you'll win a pair of tickets to CZZ Top at the Brandon Amphitheater on March the 20th. Cheap sunglasses. There you go. I'm looking for... The day we have sharp-dressed man. <laughs> On the ceasefire text line, I'm from the outside looking in. I don't live in Mississippi, but I listen daily. Seems like from what I've heard in interviews with your legislators is that they're gung-ho to eliminate this tax and that nibbling around the edges, which will ultimately kill the state's ability to eliminate the income tax. Uh, oh, pardon me, to eliminate the sales tax, the sales tax. So it's actually just the opposite. Um, honestly, that something I've stated on the program, that if we do move forward with uh, elimination of sales tax on groceries, that probably puts a nail in the coffin of eliminating uh, the income tax. Because the, the revenue the state would, would lose would make it virtually impossible to eliminate the income tax. Not 
you know, not absolutely, uh, but it would take a very long time. And the other thing to keep in mind, just as you heard Speaker Pro Tem Manley Barton say earlier on the program, is that if that were to occur, not only would the state lose its portion of the revenue, which is, uh, what, 82% of sales taxes to fund the state uh, general fund uh, expenditures, but it would have to cover the loss of the revenue to the municipalities. So it's double whammy to the state, which would just make it even more difficult to eliminate the, uh, the income tax in the state. And I think that's, that's kind of the dynamic that we're, we're dealing with with respect to uh, taxes in the state of Mississippi. But we shall see where all of that goes uh, for sure. I am pleased to see that we're getting a discussion about PERS, because this is something, Rhino, until, honestly, it sort of started surfacing as a problem, because you were seeing reports of the PERS board meeting and the PERS meetings and the board and the executive director meeting with members of the legislature outside of the session, that uh, this started to become an, an item with a lot of buzz associated with it. And that's when I decided to sit down and write that article. But it, there's no doubt that that's going to get a lot of attention in the next session, in this session. And I, and I think, as Speaker Pro Tem said, uh, mainly Barton, we'll see some action on that pretty soon here. We got folks weighing in, texting in cheap sunglasses. But we do have a winner, just waiting to confirm. Okay, awesome. So, what do we got here? Um, can't seem to get to a couple of these things. I don't know why it's not. Do y'all think Lane is going? I just got the report. I don't know if you guys saw it. That uh, Lanning's staying put. He is not going to leave Oregon for Tuscaloosa. That's exactly what he said. He ain't going. Um. I mean, if there's any team that has the money besides Alabama or maybe Texas, it would be Oregon with the Nike money. Yep. Let's so see. So anything here. Bama could throw his way, they could probably probably match at Oregon. Yeah, I think that's right. I see what's happening now. I haven't not been able to get my text line to update, but it just did. So I apologize. I missed some of those. And for some reason, it's not uh, displaying now, and I can't really tell you why. A lot of folks want those easy top tickets. I think that's what it is. So because they're still rolling in. Yeah, I see it. Absolutely, absolutely do. So can you read the text at twelve thirty nine? I paid in almost three thousand dollars, Mississippi State. I can't. I don't know why I can't pull it up. It's, not, it's acting weird on me here. Yeah, it says I paid in almost three thousand dollars in state tax. I'll get a refund of about one hundred and seventy. Okay, three thousand dollars in state tax. Well, I'd have to do the math on that, but that would put, uh, I would say, your gross income around 100 k not more. Interesting. Just, I mean, it just depends, because we, we're dealing with the 5% bracket on all income over, over 10, right? So, I mean, once you take the standard deduction out, depends on if you're single or married, of course, and if it's joint income, et cetera, but in general, it could be in the kind of 70 to 100 k range. But we're out of time here today. We appreciate you so much for uh, joining us. We'll be back with you again tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless.
Talk Mississippi Media Production.